James Willeker knew something was wrong when the taxi driver took him to a road that didn't exist. It was his own fault. Later, in that brief period between his world being broken into pieces and then returning to normal again, he took some measure of comfort in that. The driver had made an honest mistake. Willeker had given him the wrong street name, the name of a street that hadn't been built yet, and the driver, assuming Willeker knew what he was talking about, took him there. It was that simple. It was dark when he left the office. Dark and raining. He'd been working overtime, poring over a high-definition computer screen, pulling up maps of the new Greenfen housing development and checking the cobweb-like overlays of sewage and water pipes, electrical conduits and fibre-optic cables. Deconflicting the various elements of the development was a major headache, especially since the entire thing was going to be built on reclaimed marshland near the river and the surveyors couldn't guarantee the stability of the ground for anything more than five years. He'd spent most of the day rotating the three-dimensional view, peering at it from various angles and dragging the lines around trying to ensure no element came within two metres of another. Not that it mattered. The builders would put things where they damn well wanted to, regardless of whatever plans they were given. Sometimes Willeker wondered what his function actually was in the firm. Nothing ever got built according to the plans he drew up. Just like bus timetables gave bus companies a reason to be late, he suspected his plans were a blueprint for how a housing development should have been built. He'd been vaguely aware of his colleagues turning their computers off, locking their in, out and pending trays away in their cupboards, putting their coats on and bidding each other good night. but it had been something in the background, like telephones ringing in real life filtering into the dreams of a sleeping mind. He was absorbed into a vision of multicoloured lines weaving together to form the skeleton of a new town. By the time he woke up and looked around, the room was empty and his finger ached with the strain of holding the mouse button down. Time to go home. He saved the files, turned the computer off, locked his desk drawers, and slipped on his leather jacket. Rain splattered on the black mirror of the window as he avoided the gaze of his reflection. He was in his thirties, but his scalp showed through his hair if he stood with the light in the wrong place, and his skin had the dead whiteness of someone who hadn't seen daylight for a while. He tugged his collar up and adjusted the lapels. He wanted to look like Harrison Ford in Blade Runner, but he had a terrible feeling he looked more like Flash Harry, the spiv in the Centrinians films. As soon as the lift doors opened, he sprinted across the lobby, rucksack hanging from one shoulder, hoping the security guard wouldn't see him before he got out of the building. Excuse me, sir. Damn. He turned, his fingers on the door handle. The guard marched towards him, a smile on his face. His buttons were little brassy lights scattered across his uniform. Big weekend coming up, sir. Three hundred of us in full armour doing the Battle of Bosworth Field. You gonna be there, sir? He shook his head, knowing how fake his smile must have looked. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm going out. Sorry. As the guard opened his mouth to start another conversation, Willeker quickly muttered, Got a train to catch! and scooted out. As the door slid shut behind him and the rain pricked at his face, he glanced back. The guard's face had fallen into tragic lines like a puppy who'd had his chewy bone snatched away. Willeker shrugged apologetically at him through the glass door. He felt guilty, but not guilty enough to go back in and talk. The man was an obsessive historical reenactment buff who spent his every spare moment making armour and practising swordplay. 
Willeker had made the mistake of asking him one Monday morning what sort of weekend he'd had, and had spent the next half hour locked into a one-sided conversation about how the man had been taking part in a Viking assault on a castle in Kent and beaten some poor Saxon black and blue with a flat of his axe blade. All Willeker had done was to make appreciative noises and run away the moment a dispatch rider provided a convenient distraction. But ever since then, the guard had treated Willeker like a bosom buddy, assuming that he shared the same hobbies. He shook his head and let his eyes wander away from the garden across the front of the building. It was a truncated pyramid built out of orange stone and tinted glass. Spotlights illuminated its Aztec facade. The managing director had designed it himself, and every time Willeker looked at it, he wondered why anyone ever employed the firm. The walk home took half an hour on a good day, and there was precious little shelter from the rain, but he hated taking the bus. He had the kind of face that made people insist on telling him the story of their lives. Old women would detail the horrors of their recent varicose vein operations, while men in old stained shirts would explain how they left plastic bottles full of water on top of their television so that if the set caught fire, the plastic would melt and put the fire out. And he'd listen, nodding in the right places, counting the bus stops until he could get off. He couldn't face it tonight. Not after the security guard had already started things off. He'd get a taxi. There was a cafe just opposite the building, a space between two buildings that had been roofed with sheets of corrugated iron and fronted with peeling wooden boards. The taxi drivers often stopped there for a cup of tea and a bite to eat. Two cabs were parked outside. Willard could check the road for traffic and then sprinted across the road, rucksack held up to ward off the rain. The door banged open and two men emerged in a blare of light, smoke and noise. One of them turned and shouted something at the people still inside as his companion held the door open. Willeker's gaze flickered between them. Which one to go for? Which one was less likely to make small talk? The man holding the door was stuffing a bacon sandwich into his mouth with his other hand. His fingers gleamed with grease. He hadn't shaved for a few days. The other man, now turning away from the cafe and glancing over at Willeker, was tall, with dark, curly hair and a corduroy jacket that had seen better days worn over a linen shirt and tweed trousers. He looked more like a bohemian student than a taxi driver. He grinned at Willeker, and his entire face seemed to light up. Are you free? Willeker asked him. The man glanced over at his companion, who shrugged. Turning back to Willeker, he nodded. I do believe I am. His voice was deep and rich. Where would you like to go? Geographically, I mean, not philosophically. I'm afraid I don't go south of Emmanuel Kant on a Friday night. It had been a long day. That was his only excuse. The phrase Mallard Close had been on the computer screen in front of him throughout his marathon subterranean mapping session. It didn't matter that he lived in a first-floor flat in Kermall Road and that building wasn't scheduled to start on the Greenfen development for another six months. <laughs> he was tired, and the first words to come out of his mouth were, Mallard close, please. The taxi driver grinned engagingly, eyes wide and full of glee. Mallard close it is. He headed for the second car, a Peugeot that gleamed red under the neon streetlights. Willeker waited until the driver unlocked the passenger door and then climbed in. He glanced out of the window while the driver started the car. The other man, the one with the bacon sandwich, was staring after them with a frown on his face. He took a step forward as if to ask them something and then thought better of it. Shaking his head, he walked towards his own car. They pulled out and accelerated along the road. 
Streetlights flickered past in an increasing rhythm, and Willeker suddenly felt the weight of the day descend upon him. If he found out for a takeaway and had a bath while he was waiting for it to arrive, then he could eat it in bed while watching Newsnight. A couple of bottles of beer to settle his stomach, and he could be asleep by eleven. Can I take it that you've had a long day? The taxi driver asked without turning his head away from the road. Yeah, Willeker muttered. Slaving over a hot computer screen. Yeah, he replied. Conscious that he might have sounded rude, he added, Yeah, pretty late. Not as late as some nights. The driver shook his head. Willeker noticed that he drove with one hand on the steering wheel and the other on the gear stick. His name and his photograph was stuck to the glove compartment in a laminated cover. John Smith, driver number 2286. So, what is it that you do? the man asked. For a living. I'm an architect. John Smith nodded, smiling. Ah, an architect. Humans will always need buildings, won't they? Civilizations and religions rise and fall, art forms come in and out of fashion, but people will always need somewhere to put their pot plants. Yeah, that's right, Willeker muttered. We're fulfilling a basic human need for mezzanine floors and concealed lighting. Driver number 2286. Willeker frowned. Surely the cab firm couldn't really employ over 2,000 drivers. Maybe they had two offices, two sets of numbers, one set starting at 1,000 and the other at 2,000. Or maybe they got through stuff at an astounding rate and they didn't bother reassigning old numbers. John Smith took a tight corner as neatly as if the car was on rails. It must be very interesting, a job like that, he said over his shoulder. Most people don't get much of a choice about the places they live and the places they work. Take me, for instance. I have a little pied-à-terre not far from here. It's deceptively spacious on the inside, but the thing is that it's portable. If I don't like the neighbours, I can just move to a different location. You live in a caravan? Willeker asked. John Smith thought for a moment. I suppose I do, he said, surprised. Willeker glanced out of the window, and a sudden spasm of panic gripped his heart as he failed to recognise the road they were driving down. It seemed to be on the outskirts of an industrial estate. The sawtooth silhouette of a factory stood out against the rain clouds on one side, while a chicken-wire fence protected a stretch of waste ground on the other. <laughs> He'd never been there before, but somehow he recognised it. Strange yet familiar. It certainly wasn't on the way to Kermore Road. So, what do you think the defining architectural style of the next millennium is going to be then? John Smith asked cheerily as the factory vanished behind them and the car sped along the road to nowhere, fenced in on both sides by the wire netting. My money would be on concrete brutalism, but I'm willing to be convinced that the Second Dynasty Sinan Empire might make a surprise appearance. Willeker disregarded the question, which sounded like the man had read it straight out of a textbook. Concrete posts flickered in the corners of his eyes. Are we going the right way? he asked, an edge of panic in his voice. Ahead, the road terminated in a circle of tarmac and a wire gate. A sign on stilts had been erected behind the gate saying Green Fen Housing Development. The planned start date in smaller letters underneath was six months away. Willicker's firm got a credit as architects. John Smith brought the car to a fast stop, took it out of gear and looked sideways at Willicker for the first time. You wanted Mallard Close, didn't you? He jerked a thumb at the fence. Well, here we are. Ah, 
I, I wanted Kermore Road, Willeker said heavily. John Smith shook his head. You said, my lord, close. My hearing is very acute, even if I do say so myself, which I do. Thinking back, Willeker knew he was right. He could hear himself saying the words. He was tired. He'd been thinking about Mallard Close all day. It was an easy mistake to make. But that didn't explain... Uh, uh, maybe I did, he said, conceding the point with a slight nod of his head. But <laughs> Mallard Close doesn't exist. The driver frowned. Uh, uh, what do you mean? I mean, how did you know where Mallard Close is going to be? The names of the roads in this development were only suggested yesterday at an internal meeting of our company. The minutes haven't been written up yet, and it'll be weeks before the names are ratified. How do you know where Mallard Close is going to be built before we've even told the council? John Smith's face didn't react, but his gaze darted away from Willeker and towards the gate. I... I believe I heard about it. Some of the other drivers were talking over a cup of tea in a bacon roll. A fierce curiosity swept over Willeker. Uh-huh. <laughs> Try again. John Smith smiled and shrugged. Perhaps I saw it on a map. It's not on any maps, Willeker snapped. At least, not on any printed ones. It is where I come from. And where's that, then? He leaned forward aggressively. The future. There was still a smile on John Smith's face, but it was a different smile. A dangerous smile. For a few moments, Willeker couldn't understand what the man had said. He, he knew the meanings of the words, but he couldn't see how they applied to the conversation. John Smith might just as well have said, Apple cart furiously, or goose wardrobe. Then the jigsaw piece slotted into place and he laughed. <laughs> the future. You mean you're a time traveller? John Smith nodded. Glancing around the shabby interior of the car, Willeker said scathingly, And I suppose this is your time machine, hmm? Don't be foolish, John Smith replied. This is a Peugeot. Willeker blinked rapidly a couple of times. Okay, fine. What's the fare so far, then? I'll just get out and... And what? <laughs> You're right, my friend. Malartlose hasn't been built yet. That was my mistake. With millennia to play around in the odd decade here or there doesn't seem important. Of course, that's what I said to Walter Raleigh on the day of his execution when I thought I was turning up for his wedding, but uh, that's another story. He shook his head sadly. It's always the little things that trip you up. My God, you're serious, aren't you? I'd better drive you home. If I let you out here and then you've got a long walk back and this is an isolated spot, nobody will be passing. Except another time traveller, Willeker said. He meant you to be sarcastic, but... The words came out sounding resigned. John Smith shot him a wide-eyed look as he reached for the gear stick. You're taking this very calmly. Aren't you going to tell me I'm insane? Willeker opened his mouth to say something, then closed it again and swallowed. Somewhere in the depths of his mind, he knew it was the only explanation that really fitted the evidence. Oddly, of all the things that might have convinced him, it was the casual mention of Walter Raleigh. Well, that could have been part of the man's madness, of course, but John Smith had just chucked it into the conversation without apology or explanation. He obviously believed in himself. Uh, a few years back, he said finally, a French 
electronic rock musician named Jean-Michel Jarre played a concert in the London Docklands. It's all right, John Smith interrupted. You don't have to explain who Jean-Michel Jarre is. I'm reasonably au fait with Earth's classical music. Milliken nodded. Uh, right, OK. He gathered his thoughts together. They had a nasty tendency to keep falling apart and leaving him dazed. It was an open-air concert, with the most amazing light show you've ever seen. Laser beams shining up onto the clouds, images projected onto buildings, all that, and his music as well. He paused, remembering. I was a student at the time, studying architecture and design, and I couldn't afford a ticket. Besides, I was more of a classical concert-goer. Anyway, I was driving back from lectures to my digs in Catford when I suddenly crested a hill and saw this incredible multicoloured glow from down by the river, this blaze of unearthly light that pulsed and danced in time with a deep rumbling. He laughed. <laughs> I thought a UFO had landed. I mean, for a second or so, I, I really thought a UFO had landed down by the river. This is it, I thought. This is the year we make contact with aliens. And then I realised it was just a French rock musician and his light show. And I felt so... So... I was disappointed. Stupid, huh? John Smith shook his head, a half-smile on his lips. You want to believe, he said softly. You want there to be more than can be seen by the naked eye. I can understand that. Look, uh... Uh, can we talk? Can I... Can I ask you some questions? Would you like a cup of tea? I could drive us back to the cafe. There are no problems in life that can't be solved over a cup of tea. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. But uh, look, I, I don't want to take you away from your job. He caught himself. Your driving job, I mean. I assume you've got another agenda as well. Don't worry. This sort of thing is what I'm here for. What sort of thing? Talking, listening. But Willika's mind was racing ahead of his words and he had to take a deep breath to calm himself down. But aren't there any rules about, you know, giving things away? What sort of things? John Smith looked confused. Well, the future. He laughed as he reversed the car into a turn. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. I'll explain it all when we get back to the cafe. The car raced off into the darkness. Willeke gazed out at the jagged shape of the factory roof, his mind flickering between belief and disbelief, awe and worry. <laughs> Was he being suckered? Was John Smith just stringing him along, playing on his credulity? He didn't think so. He really didn't think so. The city built itself up around the moving car. Hoardings replacing fencing, walls replacing hoarding, houses replacing factories. It was getting late. Public houses were beacons of light on street corners. The car drew up in the same place it had left less than 15 minutes before. The other car was gone, its bacon sandwich-eating driver with it. Come on, John Smith said, getting out. He was, Willeke realised, well over six feet tall. This place serves the second best tea I've ever tasted. Corporal Bell made the best. Shame about her. A great loss to the country. The café was long and thin. The floor was covered in stains and the tables were topped with chipped formica. A dozen men were present alone or sitting in pairs. A few of the pairs were playing cards. 
Halfway along one wall, a counter had been built around a serving hatch. A gleaming metal tea urn and a plastic display case full of buns sat on the counter. The man behind the counter looked as if he'd been a wrestler in a previous existence. <laughs> Did places like this really exist anymore? It was like going back... in time. Willeker smiled at the sudden thought, but... underneath the smile, he detected the sharp edge of hysteria. He took a deep breath. Annex a table, John Smith said, walking off towards the counter. I'll get the tea. Willeker sat down and tried not to display too much curiosity... He wondered how many of the men there were time travellers, if any. If the whole thing hadn't been run up out of whole cloth just for his benefit. Here you are, John Smith said, placing a mug of tea in front of Willeker. He put his own mug down, then turned his chair round and straddled it, folding his arms across the back. He gazed at Willeker out of soulful brown eyes. Let's cut to the chase. A phrase I normally find very worrying, as it's so applicable to my life, but... It seems apt here. I'm a student of history and I've travelled back in time. I drive a taxi because it's one of the best ways to study history that I've found. Does that answer a lot of your initial questions? Willick's mind freewheeled for a moment or two. <laughs> Historian, he said stupidly, driving a taxi. John Smith smiled. What is history? Surreal. The conversation was Surreal. It occurred to Willeker that he might have gone mad, had a stroke, been hallucinating anything. Did it matter? Would it change the things he was doing if he suddenly realised he was barking mad? Um, history, he said carefully, is what happens. It's events, uh, wars, treaties, dates, times, places. John Smith shook his head. No. History is people. All the things you mentioned, they all boil down to what people do to other people. The trouble is that after a thousand years, the people and what they did have boiled away, and what you're left with is the dry residue. The precision of the words clashed with his cheerful face and his bohemian clothes. He looked down at his tea. If I leave this mug here and come back in a week or so, and if it's not been cleared away by Fred over there then what's left in the bottom is what's left of history when you take the people out. And that's, that's what I'm doing here. That's what we're all doing here. Anecdotal history, straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. Willeker glanced round surreptitiously. Well, how many people here are time travellers? John Smith calmly glanced from face to face. Oh, five... Six, perhaps. That many. Have you ever wondered why there are so many taxi drivers in London? Have you ever wondered why they're so talkative? Some are real, of course, but a lot of us are doing it for the stories. Is there really that much history to collect? Absolutely. And it will all be lost if we don't collect it. He sipped his tea. Who was the first American to engage the Japanese in combat at Pearl Harbor? Willeker shrugged. Oh, I don't know. Some Navy pilot? Does it matter? It did to him. His name was Ray Budwick. He was a civilian. He lived in Honolulu and he owned a light aircraft. A nice man, by the way. He owned an Alsatian. 
On Sunday the 7th of December, he decided to take his plane up for a spin. Nice day, he thought. Skies should be pretty clear. Of course, that morning they were full of Japanese heroes who opened fire on him. They shot him up, but he managed to get away by banking steeply and they carried on to attack the naval base. He landed safely in the middle of the greatest airborne attack this century of yours will see. Is that true? Willick asked, amazed. As sure as I'm sitting here talking to you. I drove a cab in Maui for a while, and I heard the story from enough people, including Ray himself, that I'm positive it's true. He shrugged. Everybody knows about Pearl Harbor, but who knows about Ray Budwick? As far as I'm concerned, he's as much an important historical character as President Eisenhower. But Willicus shook his head. I mean, that sort of thing, it's incidental. I mean, it might be interesting or funny or sad or whatever, but it's not important. Not historically. You're missing the point. The fact that Hitler or President Reagan did something on a particular date isn't as important as the fact that they both consulted an astrologer before they did it. History isn't a list of events, minute after minute, day after day, year after year. It's a web of people and the way they react to each other. He thought for a moment. Look, a while ago I was in New York, driving a yellow cab... I got chatting to a policeman one night. He was on his way home from the night shift. I asked him about his job, what it was like, what was the worst thing he'd ever seen, that sort of thing. And do you know what he told me? He said that there's an entire civilization of people living beneath the streets of New York in the subway tunnels. He told me that they almost never come up to the surface and that some of them are albino and blind. They've been down there for so long. He told me that they know the secret passages beneath New York, the abandoned subway lines, the tunnels built for gas and hydraulic lines that aren't used anymore, the boarded-up basements and cellars that nobody knows exist, the sewers, and he told me how to find some of them. And that's what I do. I and the others here, the others like me. I collect these stories. I listen. I don't ask what happened. I ask... What it was like. But why? Willa crossed. What use is the information? John Smith stared at him for a long moment. Because, he said, one day my life might depend on knowing about the sewers beneath New York. You can never have too much information. There was silence after he finished talking. Willa stared at him. For a moment, he could see what John Smith was driving at. <laughs> an organic view of time as an infinite series of connections between people. Something vibrant and alive rather than the sterile series of dry facts he'd been taught at school. So, where do I fit in? he asked. Why are you spending time talking to me? Am I a part of history too? I've never done anything special. I probably never will. You're part of history. John Smith replied softly, whether you like it or not. Whatever you do, whatever you say, you've made history. When the Greenfen housing development is built, you'll be one of the few people who know its secrets. <laughs> but it hasn't got any secrets, Willeke said. It's one of the most boring projects I've ever worked on. There must be something unusual about it. Well, some crazy old woman came into our office last month telling us to stop the project. Go on. Said something about the bodies of plague victims being dumped into the marsh in the 17th century. Well, that's quite interesting. Don't you think that's interesting? 
She was a crackpot. She said, if we see the walking dead, we can use a mixture of Epsom salts, lemon juice and bleach to repel them. (laughs) Crazy. Well, the doctor answered, looking away and rubbing his chin with the back of one hand. I've always said crazy is relative. Always that relatives are crazy. Never mind, do go on. There's nothing else to tell. We found no evidence to back up her claims other than that boring. Then... What was the most interesting project you ever worked on? John Smith said, leaning forward, eyes wide and fixed on Willika's face, as if it was the most fascinating thing in the world. Chase Manor, Willika said after a moment's thought. The name brought a memory to his mind of a wide, neo-Gothic frontage set amid wild, unkempt grounds. The owner was a bit of a nutcase. He had this big Victorian house, and he wanted us to design some scientific laboratories. We had to work on a gas supply and water and everything. He especially wanted a big skylight in the roof. He said it was for his plants to help them grow. We tried to tell him that it was a structural weak point, but he was insistent. There you are, John Smith said. You've told me something I didn't know before. One day that may make a big difference. You may have made a big difference just by talking to me. Willika felt a sudden tight sensation in his throat and he had to look away before John Smith saw the way his eyes had filled with tears. For a long while his life had been empty and meaningless, like a road going nowhere under an overcast sky. John Smith's words had opened up a rift in the clouds through which the sun was shining. He'd never thought of it that way before, but Smith was right. He was a part of history. He was a part of that web, connected to everyone and everything, from kings to beggars, from birth to death. He had to change the subject before he started crying. Do you tell everyone you talk to you're a time traveller? He asked. Or am I just lucky? Not usually, John Smith replied. I made a foolish mistake with you, and I felt I owed you an explanation. I asked earlier whether you were worried about giving things away, about the future and changing time, and you said you'd explain it later. Won't it affect things, me knowing that time travel is possible? Isn't there a chance I might do something different now, something I wouldn't have done before? What if my house would have caught fire if I'd gone home, but because you told me you're a time traveller and because I came here with you, I'm still alive? And Won't that sort of thing change the future? John Smith half smiled and shook his head sadly. Time doesn't work like that. You're confusing time and history. History is the one like a web of connections. Time's not like that at all. You know that there are elemental particles that matter is built up of. Willica nodded. John Smith continued. Well, time's the same. There's a smallest possible unit of time, indivisible and complete. Think of them as... Moments. You can change time, moment by moment, but as soon as you stop changing it, the next moment that comes along will be the same as it was before. Unless you make a really big change and then you drag time off course, but that's a thing we try not to do if we can help it. He glanced at the clock behind the counter. But I digress. It's time I was getting back on the road. You know how it is, things to do, people to talk to, invasions to thwart. He pushed his chair back and stood up. It's been nice chatting to you. Good luck. One of the chaps here will take you home. Remember to talk to them as well. Even if your information doesn't save my life, it may save theirs. 
As John Smith walked off towards the café door, Williker was frozen for a moment. The hairs on the back of his neck began to bristle. Wait, he called after him. What about me? What happens now? But John Smith was gone. By the time Williker finished his tea, the rain had stopped. He walked home. The insane conversation with John Smith playing over and over in his head. He couldn't make any sense of it. Back in his flat, with the takeaway dished out on a large plate, he picked up the remote from the side of the bed and turned the television on. Colours swam up from the darkness of the screen, tiny figures kicking a ball across an unnaturally green background. The changing light levels cast flickering shadows across his bedroom. He changed channels just in time to catch the opening credits of Newsnight. Depending on how interesting the headlines were, he'd watch it while he was finishing his takeaway, then settle down to sleep. And then the office tomorrow, and more long hours moving lines around the screen, followed by a takeaway and maybe a video. And the next day, the same. It didn't matter what John Smith had said. Once upon a time, when Willeke was a student, he dreamed of making a difference, making his mark on history. He dreamed that he would design buildings that would live on as a monument to his name, but he knew now that history was passing him by, and he'd be forgotten, even before he died. He leaned to one side and reached for the door of the bedside cabinet. The light from the television reflected back as an amber glow from the bottle of whiskey inside. His fingers closed around the comforting weight of the bottle. History had forgotten about him. With enough whiskey inside him, he could forget about history. <laughs>